Bible Biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. Our focus in this episode is the disciple John, one of Jesus' disciples, but part, Mike, of a kind of inner circle as well. Yes, he was. We often find him linked, don't we, with two others. Peter, James, and John is often a, a sort of trio that we find together in the Gospels. And among the 12 inner disciples that become apostles that Jesus called, um, while he called all of them friends in, in John's Gospel, there were these three, Peter, James, and John, who seemed to be sort of in an inner circle, not favorites, but I, I suppose it's just like, you know, Jesus was human as well as divine. And just like we do perhaps have closer friends than others, he had these particularly close friends. And of course, before he called them, they'd known one another anyway, because they'd all been fishermen fishing out of the same place. So they would have worked together, grown up together, known one another. So there was a, an already formed friendship group there among them. What, what was the relationship between them all? Well, James and John were brothers, sons of Zebedee. He was the dad who owned the fishing business, and the three of them worked together. But Peter was also a fisherman out of the same place, out of Capernaum. And it was a fairly small place, and, you know, all the fishermen would have known one another, pretty much like fishermen do today when they uh, fish out of one of our ports in the UK or anywhere else in the world. So we've got two brothers, a really good mate, and they would have worked together often because that's what fishermen often used to to do. Interesting that Jesus chose two brothers. Yes, I don't know why that is. Um, one certainly responded and went and found his other brother. Uh, but I suppose brothers naturally share with one another. Sometimes there's the rivalry, isn't there, between them. Um but was there something else? I don't know. We, we're just not told. But clearly there was a close relationship and the two of them together heard this call of Jesus and uh, responded to him. In fact, we read in, in Matthew 4 that when uh, Jesus started to call his first disciples, uh, James and John, we read, were sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee repairing their nets and he called them to come too because he's just called Peter and Andrew and um, they immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. So there was something in the brothers' hearts that clicked when Jesus called them. And of course, you reminded me that Peter and Andrew were brothers. So there's four four brothers. That's right. And remember, uh, people used to, to run family businesses in those days. It's not like today where everyone goes off and does their own thing. So if you'd grown up and your dad was a fisherman from an early age, you would have been out there as a boy, particularly fishing with him. And uh, you'd have grown up in the family business and that would have been the expectation. So, yeah, so we've got these two sets of brothers mm. who'd grown up together, fished the lake together, uh, and now who are called to become fishers for people mm. by Jesus. It's just that, you know, my maths mind is saying, so four out of the 12 disciples were, were brothers. So a third of the disciples were, were related to each other. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But John, John is our focus. So, so what's his background? You've told us a little bit about his family, his father and so on. Uh, what, what else do we know? Well, we know that he was a fisherman. Uh, we don't know a lot more about him other than his character. Now, it, it's interesting that uh, 
fairly early on, uh, Jesus gives him and his brother uh, a nickname uh, in Mark chapter 3. He calls them Boanerges, which translated means sons of thunder, the thunder boys. (laughs) Now, I think that tells you straight away something about the character of these guys. These were feisty guys. It looked like it didn't take much to to get them going. These were the thunder boys, as Jesus called them. So I think that gives us an insight into their character. And for me, one of the amazing things that stands out in the gospel story is how these thunder boys are transformed as they walk with Jesus and are discipled by him. Because John, of course, is the one who has so much in his gospel and in the letters that he writes later in the New Testament. There's so much about loving one another. Um, He becomes the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's enigmatically called at the end of his own gospel. He's referring to himself there. And uh, the thunder boy is transformed over this period of discipleship with Jesus to become a disciple who's passionate for Jesus and who's passionate that we should love one another. And we, you know, we see something of that process and and change happening uh, as we go through the gospel. I suppose it would be easy to overlook the reference there to that sort of nickname that Jesus gave them. Uh, There was a point in that, presumably. I was thinking of... uh, Barnabas, um, a character we might yes. look at later who had a nickname. Yes. But the idea of nicknames, you know, and then the fact that perhaps some of us have had nicknames over the years, and it's 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 another way of describing something about us. Yes, it is, isn't it? And some nicknames can be pretty cruel in life, can't they? Mm-hmm. Uh, but most nicknames are sort of friendly. They, they might have little poketers, but, but they're friendly as well. And I, I, I think that's what this was here. Jesus saw them, he saw something in their character, but he knew the sort of energy that at the moment was coming out wrong. If only that could be challenged for the kingdom of God. And as he discipled them, that's exactly what happened. So the thunder boy, yeah, I want you to thunder, John, but you're going to thunder in a whole different way and for a whole different purpose. Now, John uh, has, has left us, as it were, what what uh, written um, material, what, what, what writings uh, are we drawing on here? Well, we have a, a number of writings. In fact, he's a pretty prolific writer in the New Testament. So obviously, first and foremost, we've got John's Gospel, one of the four accounts of Jesus's life. Uh, interestingly, done from a, a slightly different angle from Matthew, Mark and Luke which scholars call the synoptic gospel. Synoptic means from the same viewpoint. They're much more sort of historical, trail the story through. John is much more thematic. He goes for key ideas at key points in Jesus's life, uh, perhaps a little more reflective, uh, we might say. Some have even called it a little bit more philosophical. So we've got his gospel. We've then got three letters towards the end of the New Testament, one, two, and Three John. Uh, some scholars think it wasn't John, but a disciple of John who wrote those. But I think the language is so similar to John's gospel, it seems to me, and many other scholars, that it's clearly uh, the Apostle John who wrote them, but in his later life. And, and, and then we've got the weird one. We've got the book of Revelation, right. which was also written by John, 
written but also revealed to him. It's it's is what it says, a revelation of Jesus to him. When he is an older guy in exile on the island of Patmos, which was a Roman penal colony. So in chapter one of Revelation, we find him in the spirit on the Lord's day on this island of Patmos. And suddenly um, he's having a revelation. He hears a voice, turns around and he sees a guy who he's not seen for 50 years. It's Jesus who's come and appeared to him. Mm and gives him a revelation, not just about the end times, which is what we so often think revelation is, but it was a message to encourage the believers who were facing incredible persecution towards the end of the first century. Uh, and John gets this revelation from Jesus to encourage them and to bring the heart of the message, hey, listen, bad stuff might happen, but I'll let you into a secret. We win. So we've got five writings in the New Testament mm from this um, thunder boy. Yeah, well, let's look at Revelation a little bit later on, but let's just start with the, with the gospel then and, and what that account of life with Jesus tells us. Well, it's an interesting book because, as I said, it's a little bit more philosophical, a little bit more reflective. At times, there's even little insights into John's having been there himself. Um, he notes how... He was the disciple who was next to Jesus at the Passover, that final Passover that Jesus shared before he went to the cross. And he was the one who leaned into Jesus and said, who is it that's going to betray me? We get, obviously, some of the stories that we do in the other Gospels. But it's almost as if John carries something more of the, the sort of reflective teaching of Jesus. Some scholars even think maybe John's tradition carries more of the teaching that Jesus gave privately to his disciples, and the others have much more of the, the public teaching. And, and then we get that lovely bit right at the end of John's gospel where Peter is recommissioned, and we looked at that in a previous episode, where Peter's concerned and says, Lord, what about this man? Hmm. And this man he was talking to was John, and Jesus says, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? And he said, because of this, a rumor started that this disciple, you know, wouldn't die. And, and he says, no, no, it wasn't that. It's just Jesus said, if I want him to remain till I come, what's that to you? You follow me. You get on with doing what you need to do. Hmm. And at the end of the gospel, John is there sort of settling a rumor that had come about him. So this reflective insight into Jesus, reflective and selective. So John doesn't tell us everything about Jesus. He actually only picks out seven miracles or seven signs, they're often called, mm -hmm. that point to whom Jesus is. He has seven major sayings. He has seven witnesses to Jesus. Everything around seven. Yeah. Why seven? Because seven was that Jewish number of completeness, perfection. Though he knew lots more at the end of John 20, he, he ends up saying, now Jesus did many other miraculous signs which aren't recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And it's as if John's saying, I know lots more, but I've given you just seven signs, seven sayings, seven witnesses, the perfect number. I could give you lots more, but I've given you enough 
for you to see who this man is who changed my life and he can change yours. And the secret to that, of course, is in perhaps one of the best known passages in the New Testament where John tells the story of Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus and where he tells Nicodemus that all the religion in the world can't save you. Being born Jewish can't save you. What you need is to be born again. And Nicodemus says, what on earth does that mean? And Jesus slightly teases him. You're a scholar and you don't know this. And he explains how being born again is about being having an experience of God's Holy Spirit as we put our faith in Jesus. And as we believe that just as he says, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man is going to have to be lifted up on a cross and whoever believes in him won't perish. They will have everlasting life. So John knew that that was the secret, but just gives us little windows. Enough, he says, for you to be able to encounter this man who I encountered and who changed my life. I guess we can learn from that because I'm sure you know people, I know people who are who are searching, searching for meaning, searching for purpose, probably searching for Jesus, and sometimes give the impression they want more and more and more. But what you're saying is that there comes a point where you don't necessarily need more and more and more. Yes, uh, I've talked to many people, obviously, as a pastor over the years. And uh, as you say, often people just want that bit more evidence. And I've often said, how much more is enough? It's a bit like money, isn't it? You know, I wish I had a bit more money. How how much more? When would you be satisfied? When would you have enough? Mm. And Yes, absolutely. God wants us to ask our questions so that our faith is based on good foundations. But, you know, the point comes when um, we will still have questions. I still have questions. You still have questions. Mm. But the point comes when we have had enough answers to trust. And frankly, that's what scientists do. When they are exploring some new theory, when they're testing out some new drug, they may not have absolutely every single answer, but they come to a point where they say there is now enough evidence for us to assume that this is correct and for us to continue unless something comes that challenges it. And I suppose Christian faith is a bit like that, John's saying, you know, I've given you enough here in this book for you now to be able to step out and that you now can believe that Jesus is indeed God's son come into this world to save us from the mess we've made of our lives and to invite us to join him in this exciting path of discipleship that John himself walked. Now, obviously, John is, from what you've said, pointing towards Jesus, but what does he say about himself? I think there's a reference, isn't there, to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Yes, it's a strange uh, reference, isn't it, in some ways? So it sounds slightly presumptuous. Well, it does, doesn't it, when you first read that? But I think what he was trying to do was the very opposite. I think he's trying to write his book, and he wants his book to be about Jesus, not about John. But John was really keen that people read this book, and they read about Jesus and learned about Jesus. So where he is involved, rather than saying, and I was there uh, at that time as well, he uses this sort of slightly enigmatic phrase, the disciple that Jesus loved. Actually, some scholars even wonder whether this was yet another sort of nickname 
that Jesus has used for him. Um, hey, disciple Jesus loves, come here. And, and maybe something had happened mm. uh, and it became some sort of catchphrase. So it's certainly not about pushing himself forward. It's about him wanting to hide and say, please don't look at me. Please don't look at me. All I want you to do is, is to look at the one that I'm telling you about. And, of course, John appears not just in the Gospel of John. We find him also in the other Gospels. And it's interesting, in some ways, we, we perhaps see a more fuller, rounded picture of his character uh, in some of those Gospels. So there we find, although he was, as we said earlier, in this sort of very privileged position of being in that sort of inner circle of mates, of Peter, James, and John, um, there are a number of stories in the other Gospels where, where John actually doesn't come out, you know, with shining lights, and it shows that he uh, was on a process. For example, there's there's a story in Mark uh, nine where John comes and tells Jesus, "Hey, we just found a guy um, casting out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he's not part of our group," and he expected. Jesus to approve him for that. And Jesus just says, listen, you know, who, whoever's not against us is for us. Um, there was another well-known story. Uh, Mark 10 is one of the places where it's found, where James and John approach Jesus. Uh, one of the Gospels has them approaching Jesus through their mother. So perhaps all three of them were there and, you know, mother sort of pushing them along, uh, going to Jesus and saying, Jesus, um, when you come in your kingdom, and you think, oh, this is good, they've got it, he's coming in his kingdom. When you come in your kingdom, mm. um, could we have the best seats <laughs> at, at the final banquet? Could we have uh, the privileged position? Mm. And, and Jesus has to use that as an opportunity to say, guys, you really don't know what you're asking about. You know, because the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve. The kingdom is not about taking the best place. It's about taking the lowest place. And then there's a third story in uh, Luke's gospel when uh, they're, they are moving as a group together through a Samaritan village as they're on their way to Jerusalem. And this Samaritan village does not welcome Jesus at all. And it's John and his brother James, again, the sons of thunder. You see, there's still mm. quite a bit of that there, mm. uh, saying, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? Oh, my goodness, there's the sons of thunder. So we certainly shouldn't get any sense that these disciples are sort of plastic-cast saints. <laughs> these are real people like us who struggle and who are passionately committed to following Jesus, and yet who are on a process and a journey. And so there's just three little examples from the other Gospels where we see John didn't always get it right. He didn't always understand about, you know, this is about serving, not about being served. And it's little by little that this character is changed. And that's why I, I love John so much, because we clearly see this transformation as I said earlier, from Thunderboy mm. to discipling Jesus' love, for whom the driving motivation in life is love. 
So particularly in things like his first letter, there's so much about love and how if we don't love, how can we say we love God unless we love other people? And when I get to verses like that, I think, my goodness, what a transformation Jesus did in you, Thunderboy. And in a previous episode, I remember you mentioned that poignant scene with Jesus on the cross being crucified and handing his mother over to John into his care. Yes, which again reflects how very close these guys must have been. As we've said previously, um, Joseph seems to have been dead by this point. Otherwise, there would have been no need for this. And there at the cross, you know, what tenderness of Jesus, even in his agony, thinking about his mother, wanting to ensure that she would be cared for. And as you say, yes, uh, saying to John, here's your mother, mother, here is your son. Look after one another. And while the Bible doesn't tell us about this, early church tradition tells us that John uh, ended up in Ephesus, being responsible for a number of churches in that area, and that he took Mary there with him. And there's, to this day, a, a chapel there uh, that's uh, devoted to her and in memory of that. So again, you know, Jesus must have thought so much of him, mustn't he? To entrust mm. your own mum to someone when you're not going to be around anymore. So once again, this thunder boy, something's happened in his heart that will change him. And of course, at Pentecost, once he's filled with the Holy Spirit, that change becomes even greater and even more dynamic. You mentioned Ephesus. Were, were, were John's letters written to the church in Ephesus? Yes, they seem to have been. Um, they seem to have been written to um, Christians in that area, in Ephesus and around it. Uh, but again, we get most of the evidence for that from early church writings outside of the Bible and from the early church fathers. So, yeah, these are letters to the churches for whom he has responsibility, just like Paul sent his letters to uh, different churches. And yes, one of those was to the Ephesians, but also John has responsibility for a number of churches in Ephesus, which is, is in modern day Turkey. So in that area, and those are the people to whom John writes these letters. So beyond the crucifixion and Jesus's resurrection, what, what role does John take on? Well, he's obviously a pretty senior figure in the church. Uh, after Pentecost. So we find him there uh, with the disciples on the day of Pentecost. But it's it's pretty clear that Peter and John seem to be the two of the leading figures uh, at that time. So once the Holy Spirit has fallen in Acts chapter 2 and Peter has preached his amazing sermon and 3,000 have got saved in one day. Wow, I would have loved to have been there for that. That was amazing. But as we go into Acts chapter 3, uh, we find that it's Peter and John who are on their way to the temple that day when they come across this guy at the temple gate who is looking for help and he holds his hand out hoping for some money. And it, it says that Peter and John looked at him and I've often thought, oh, I bet the guy thought he was going to get a good gift that day. Mm. Uh, and then his heart sinks when they both say, silver and gold, we don't have, but we do give you what we have in the name of Jesus Christ. Get up and walk. And the man does, and he starts racing around the temple courts. 
And everybody says, glory to God, hallelujah. No, the religious leaders don't at all. They're really cross. And they bring Peter and John in and saying, you know, who are you guys? What are you doing? Who gave you authority to do this stuff? And it's interesting, next four, we read that when they interview them, it says they realize they were unschooled, ordinary men. That's quite demeaning. They meant they'd had no religious education. These were just fishermen. What what on earth are they doing things like this? But it's also interesting, it says, but they took note that they'd been with Jesus. Mm. So he clearly has, you know, quite a powerful ministry. We see him uh, in another uh, major incident in Acts chapter 8. Now, because of persecution that arose following the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7, we find that there was a great persecution that was released on the whole church. And chapter 8 tells us that all except the apostles were scattered, and some of them are scattered into Samaria, that area north of Judea, sandwiched between Galilee in the north and Judea in the south. Uh, these people were still hated by Jews from stuff that had happened way back in history. And yet the gospel goes there through Philip and Samaritans get saved. Now, you know, this is beyond the pale to some people. Mm. So who is it who goes and finds out what's happened? It's John and Peter who go from Jerusalem to see what's been happening with all these Samaritans turning to Christ. And it's John and Peter who recognize what's happened and who then lay their hands on these new believers for them to receive the Holy Spirit in the same way that they did. Now, why that delay? Why why hadn't they received the Holy Spirit earlier? I think what God's doing here is he's healing a breach that's been there for hundreds of years and wanting the Samaritans to know they need the Jewish Christians, and the Jewish Christians need the Samaritan Christians. So he's involved in really key incidents in those early chapters, but then he seems to, he doesn't disappear from the scene, he disappears from the story that Luke tells us in Acts. But we know that clearly he was involved in much more, and as we said, eventually ends up in Ephesus and these letters that he writes and the book of Revelation. Well, that he receives. Well, I'm keen to talk about the book of Revelation because, as you sort of indicated, it's a, it's a puzzling book in many respects. Um, yeah, what, 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 why, I wonder, did he have this revelation of Jesus that was so significant? Well, I think there's a very practical reason, and that is that by the time John wrote this, he's a really old man. Um, Most scholars think Revelation was probably written around about 95 AD. So this is really towards the end of John's life. And by this time, the Roman state has now turned against Christianity. So you've got a church facing outright persecution. Mm -hmm. And the whole message of Revelation is a message to encourage Christians that no matter what, is thrown against us. Jesus is still on the throne. So the first thing that John sees in his revelation as his eyes are opened and he's in the spirit taken up to heaven, what does he see in heaven? He sees it's a glorious place 
full of worship, full of those who have been martyred. They're safe with Jesus. And where is Jesus? He's on the throne in Revelation chapter 4. And Jesus stays on that throne right throughout the book, right to the very end. And it's as if John is being shown that no matter what comes against you, no matter what beasts in his image, beasts of the land or beasts of the sea might come against you, Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is working things out to his own good purpose. It's a complex book because it's written in a style that we don't use these days. It's a style of literature called apocalyptic, which uses powerful imagery and numbers to symbolize other things. And the trouble is that allows for all sorts of crazy interpretations our day. But what we have to remember is that these symbols and numbers were well understood by the people of the time. And if we want to understand Revelation, then we've got to read it in the way that they would have done, not superimposing our modern ideas. But the heart of Revelation is this. Yes, stuff will be thrown against us Christians, but hang on in there. We win. And even if they take our life, we win. So from the moment he was called from his role as a fisherman to this this amazing revelation, what do you draw from, from John's life? Yeah, I mean, to get to write the very last words of the whole canon of Scripture, what a privilege that is. I think what I draw from John is that change really is possible. This thunder boy hmm. allowed Jesus to take hold of his life and to change him. It didn't happen in a smooth continuum. As we've seen, there were those points where he got it terribly wrong, but he kept following Jesus. He really did believe what he wrote, that by believing in Jesus, we can have eternal life. But that's not the end of it. And see the change that can come. Give your life to Jesus. Start following him. Let him disciple you. And you too can become a disciple whom Jesus loves and whom Jesus uses. David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB player or with your favorite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.